Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, so before we get into today's episode, I just want to tell you about a great opportunity. You see, we've had a massive interest lately in learning a second language, and I do a lot of my language training with my very good friend, Ollie Richard. We've been friends for three or four years now, and he's been on my program, and I've been on his program, and he spoke at my conferences, and I've spoke at his conferences, and he really is a genius. His techniques for teaching languages are just out of this world. He actually makes it fun and enjoyable. He was one of the main drivers for me rekindling my interest in Spanish. And under his tutelage and his advice and using his programs, I went from really crummy Spanish to quite fluent in a really short amount of time. So if you are looking to learn a second language or maybe even a third language, what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language forward slash language, and it's going to redirect you to some of all these best courses out there in the world. And there's some special promotions going on, some special opportunities for subscribers of my podcast. So I hope you take us up on this offer and go and check it out. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language to get the best resources in the world for learning a second language. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is an award-winning writer, speaker, musician, and entrepreneur from Denver, Colorado. His nonfiction book, The Fun Side of the Wall, Baby Boomer Retirement in Mexico, has been a number one new release on Amazon, and portions of it have been quoted in Forbes and PBS. It details the sociological motivations for some of the most affluent and educated baby boomers in the U.S. migrating to Mexico. The irony, of course, is the heated debate about keeping Mexicans out of the U.S. The book is not a how-to guide for moving to Mexico. Rather, it is a sociological study of the state of retirement in the United States and how those challenges are driving some of the most educated and affluent baby boomers into Mexico. The book concludes that it is a longing for authentic community and a break from consumerism that keeps baby boomers in Mexico, not just cheaper living. Please welcome to the show, Travis Luther. Travis, how are you doing? 
I'm Grant McKell. Thank you for having me. I've, I've actually been a, a fan of your work for a number of years, and um, and so this is a real thrill to join you in person. Travis, flattery will get you everywhere. Thank you so much. <laughs> Why don't you take a minute and talk to us through your backstory? I love your book. I think that the idea is really interesting. Explain to me how you decided to to write this book because it is very different than a lot of the you know move overseas types of books. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nothing I really ever expected to do in my life or to to have this much success with. But I, I've been an entrepreneur for almost twenty five years now, um, and you know, at the at the time. Uh, I had kind of two periods in my entrepreneurial career, what I call the first 10 years and the last 10 years or what's turned into to 15 years now. And so for the first 10 years of my business career, I spent that building and burning down to the ground, you know, every everything that I started to do. And so I hit this, I hit this point about, you know, 2003, 2004, where I really started to believe people who always told me, oh, you have so many pipe dreams and you're never going to make it as an entrepreneur. And what you need to do is go to college and buy a house and all that crap that, that we, that we know now is not actually the, the path to success, but I really started to believe that because I had had so many failures. And so in 2004 or five, I returned to college, um, uh, kind of beat up, you know, and, and, and decided that maybe I needed to have a job for somebody rather than making jobs for people. Um, and so I, I started, um, I started, started studying business and marketing, but I started taking these sociology classes as part of my prerequisites to finish. And I just fell in love with it. It was totally unexpected. You know, this idea of why people land where they land and how circumstances affect your future and the things that we have control of and don't have control of. And, and it just, it, it blew me away. So I changed my major at that time from uh, marketing to uh, uh, behavioral science. Um, at the same time, I was still, you know, practicing entrepreneurship and it started a little business. And, and suddenly, you know, the culmination of being in school, um, and having this 10-year history of failure, so, something clicked for me. And I started to realize I needed that previous 10 years to have my future 10 years of success. I needed to learn some of those hard lessons, um, which coincided with, you know, a heavy academic rigor in sociology and stumbling upon two books, The 4-Hour Workweek, which I'm sure all your listeners are familiar with. And then another book called The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. And I kind of read these books back to back while I was starting to have some success in entrepreneurship and deciding I really liked social science. Um, and so I decided when I got my bachelor's degree that I was not done learning and I wanted to continue to graduate school and pursue a master's degree and hopefully eventually a PhD in, in sociology. But what, what I was really interested in myself was you know, suddenly I was also very busy in business and very busy in school and I needed help. And so I started taking some of these resources from Thomas Friedman um, and from Tim Ferriss and trying to find people overseas to kind of outsource my projects to and my work to and came on this, you know, digital nomad kind of landscape that was emerging at the time in which there was this realization that you could work you know, from anywhere. And, and that if you put yourself in the right spot, as far as geography goes, you could actually make a decent living with wages in the United States and live a really, really great life overseas. You know, and it was at, at that point that I realized I'd been really naive also for, for the first 10 years in my life, thinking that the U.S. indeed offered the best of everything, you know, that we had the best education system, the best financial system, the best healthcare system, the best retirement system. And I was realizing through these interactions with other people and my own studies 
that that wasn't really true. And so I got curious as to why other people would want to leave the United States. I was starting to have these feelings myself, that, that I was curious in expatriation, that I had grown up naive. I had a, a son and another son on the way, and that maybe I wanted my family to have an international experience so that they came to these conclusions faster than I did. And so that kind of coincided with my graduate school career and having to make a decision about my thesis. And so, you know, my advisor said, well, you can't survey all the expats in the world and figure out why all the people are leaving. Can you find a small community of expats in a single place that you can have access to an interview? And so I started looking and I found a group of baby boomers down in the Lake Chapala area of Mexico, which is just uh, south of Guadalajara, and decided to settle on them for my study. And that's really what kind of launched this for me was both this, you know, this personal interaction and travel with these expats and really coming to understand why they went where they went. And this realization that my original idea that people moved out of the country because they were poor and they couldn't afford to live in the United States was, was totally blown out of the water. And so that was really the, the genesis of my original project and, and how we came, you know, 10 years later to, to where I am now. So many things I want to unpack there. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I definitely want to get into, you know, the the reasons that people move overseas. Um, you know, but I think one of the things that really struck me that you said is that a lot of the people, they're not moving overseas for the reasons that people assume that they're moving overseas, that there need to a, and, and I don't mean that there aren't some people, but they're, not everybody is just looking how to get by on a $1,000 social security check. There's actually a lot of people who move overseas for fun, adventure, bucket list type of things, culture. You know, there, there's going to be a whole bunch of things. Maybe we can jump into a little bit more detail about the reasons that you've seen in your studies and not necessarily on Mexico, which is, is the theme of your book, but just in general terms, like why are people retiring abroad? Why are people moving abroad? I think that for the people in my book and both, you know, other people that I've interviewed, um, that there is this sense of adventure, right? And this and this idea of wanting to take on and face a new challenge. And so, and that's certainly more of the motivation as you get younger, right? So when you're younger and you don't have a family and you don't have responsibilities like that, then if you can find a way to find some adventure in your life, get outside of the United States, work from your laptop, et cetera, et cetera, then, then, then that's a really powerful motivator. But I think across the board, what people find when they get out of the United States is that the world is a lot different than the world that we live in here. And, you know, I'm working on a second book right now, which is still about Mexico, but it's, it's looking at expats across all of the age groups and trying to understand what motivates people sub baby boomer. Um, and, and it still comes back to less stress, right? Less stress and this idea of living in a more authentic community, right? That there's something in the United States that's driving people out, right? That, that people have grown tired of kind of consumerism, they've grown tired of every interaction having to do with something with business, and they're looking for more personal people-based connections, not financial-based connections. So keeping up with the Joneses and things like that, trying to get away from that type of consumerism mindset, hey? Yeah, and we're not talking about people who are pro-socialism or pro-communism or anything like that. They're just trying to say, help me find a place where when I have an interaction with somebody, the first thing they ask me is not, what do you do for a living, right? Mm. 
but what are the things that you do that you love in your free time or what are your passions, you know, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned another really interesting thing there. And that's that a lot of people, when they grow up, uh, like I'm from Canada, certainly in Canada, and I believe also in the United States, we believe that the world is very small, that there are a couple of free countries in the world and kind of beyond our borders, you know, Western Europe, Australia, North America, you know, kind of stopping at one wall there, that it's like a jungle out there. Like that the, the rest of the world is, they're, they're savages. Um, <laughs> they, they don't know what they're doing. They don't have freedom. There's just tyrants. It's war-torn. And, you know, there's just these little enclaves of, of communities, countries, states that, that are safe. But certainly in, in my adventures, you know, visiting 104, 105 different countries, you know, I can tell you that freedom is actually the rule. It's not the exception, like the majority of the countries in the world. In your own travel and in your research, what have you seen, Travis? I'd say the exact same thing. I mean, you almost just spoke verbatim to the introduction of my book, which says, you know, I'm a, I'm a late Gen Xer. I grew up during, you know, Bosnian genocide and, uh, you know, different wars in Central America. And I really did come to view the rest of the world outside of the United States as, you know, as I said in the book, dangerous and stupid. You know, what does it have to offer a person like me? And I, I say with quite a bit of an embarrassment, it wasn't until 10 years ago that I really decided I was going to travel the world and see things for myself. And just as you said, what I have found is that most places in the world, and I will say this, most people in the world, right? They want peace. They want autonomy. They want genuine connection with other people. And whatever their leadership is doing or whatever the U.S. or North American-based media is focused on is generally not what the rest of the world looks like 23 and a half hours of each of their day, right? If even 24. And so my life has been enriched by travel. And as I kind of say on my website, you know, I think that the, the, the road to peace is paved through travel. And I think that people, um, you know, one of the frustrations with my, with my book is some of the, the social media marketing that I've done or content that I've put out, you wouldn't, well, you probably would because you do the same thing, but <laughs> I, would say that I, I wouldn't have believed when I started this project, how many people are combative on the subject of not just Mexico, but world travel in general, right? And those people who have done the least amount of travel in their lives tend to be the people who are most, uh, who are the loudest and most egregious in their statements about the rest of the world. And I got to tell you, going out there, you know, I've been to so many places now in Chile and India and China and Hong Kong and, and Ireland and England, you know, I mean, I've just tried to, to go everywhere. Um, I, I have, I have been enriched by that travel experience and I have more optimism about the world being able to address peace and solve its problems than I ever had being in the United States. And I can see how staying in the United States is this, kind of circular uh, mentality of, of fear and anger and fear and anger and fear and anger. And, you know, if mm -hmm. I have one mission, it's, it's to, to break that and to say like, you are a citizen of the world, my friends. Right. And, and you've got to really embrace that because there are so many great places and people. Well, I find that society in general, at least in North America, it is really about finding the differences between people. It is about segregating them at a very young age, um, trying to alienate them from others, alienate them from their family, from the church, from society, alienate them from themselves, and 
you were always taught to believe that you were, there's something different with you. you know. But what I try to do is show that actually there's more similarities between one another than we actually believe. Like uh, state lines and, and, and borders you know, don't make people different. You know, like, like you said, um, on what people want and what people need, you know, I would add to that in, in my extensive travels that people want a roof over their head. They want to protect their family and take care of their family. They want a full meal in their stomach, a big belly, and they want to be loved. You know, they want to be loved. And I don't care where you come from. I don't care if you're tall, short, fat, skinny, gay, straight, LGBT, black, white, yellow, doesn't matter. These are the fundamental things that human beings want. And I think that if we focus on what makes us similar, you know, we are going to do a lot better as humanity. And, and I don't mean to be an idea, like, I don't mean to be an idealist, but Really, it's true. This is what my life and my travels have taught me. Yeah, and 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we have we I, in graduate school we t- looked at these time studies in sociology, in which uh, you know, I don't know what the numbers are. Let's say ten thousand participants are given a little wristwatch, right? And so that wristwatch dings uh, at random times in the day, and that person participating in the study has to write down what they're doing at any specific time in the day, right? And so you find out that people are in general spending their days doing the exact same things with the exact same frustrations. They're going to the bathroom, having breakfast, going to work, trying to figure out where to park their car and things of that nature. However, they're focused on the things that divide them. Abortion, religion, gun control, all of those segments that you've talked about, right? Well, none of those people that are willing to fight and in some cases even die are spending any time in their day remotely (laughs) focused on that subject unless it's brought up by some perceived adversary or politician, right? So you're absolutely right. Why can't we get focused on what we have in common and that we all want we want peace, safety. We, we, we don't want to be hungry. We want, we want our sick people taken care of. We want our elderly people cared for. I, I, I just don't get it. But I can tell you with respect to my book and, and Mexico, there is a difference in that culture um, in which family takes care of each other and it's always family first. And, and that is one of the attractive things about getting out of the U.S., not just from Mexico, but all over the world is where are our priorities different so that I feel supported, right? And I don't know that that's here in this moment in the United States right now. So then talk to me about why are people leaving the U.S. specifically? Because like we can talk, I can give my opinion, you know, you can talk about your travels, but what does the data tell us? Like what are the majority of why are people leaving the U.S.? You know, so I can only speak to, to Mexico on the data side with any level of expertise. So I, I want to be careful to get out. But I, I do want, you know, like I said, just on other conversations, see a lot of the, these things scale. But one thing, especially as you get older, is definitely healthcare. Right. And so, you know, that that was a big reason why people looked into Mexico in the first place is, as you know, as you're approaching retirement, unfortunately, sometimes you're also approaching some chronic health conditions and 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 in other parts of the world, but Mexico specifically, you know, Healthcare is based uh, healthcare pricing is based on your income and in Mexico, a family of four. Uh, expatriates, you know, with with temporary or permanent residency, is going to pay between zero and five hundred dollars at the top end a month for the national healthcare system. And for some people, that is what it 
that 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 is all of their money, right? And so healthcare is a big one, even though the younger people don't take advantage of it as much as older people. But older people want to feel that they're not going to be wiped out by by some kind of uh, illness or injury. So that would be one. I know um, I can't I can't you know, the cost of living in other countries is much lower than us. You know, we, we fortunately in the United States, you know, I think we're, we're not the top, right? But we, we sit in the top five of, of income and wages. Um, but that also puts us at the top of cost of living, right? And I, I think maybe outside of, of, of you know, were you in Abu Dhabi still or? Yeah, I was in Abu Dhabi for eight years. Now I'm based out of Panama City, so. All right. So, you know, that like outside of that, I mean, the United States has some of the highest cities with the highest cost of living in the entire world. Um, and, and, and that trickles down and that makes, you know, the quote unquote American dream impossible for people. Not that I'm a big believer in buying homes and white picket fences and all of that stuff. But for those who aspire to that, it's, it's just not possible anymore. So they have to ask themselves, like, where can I go to have some decent kind of living that I, where I, but I also don't have to break my back, you know, working 80 hours a week or something like that. And I think Mexico also offers that to some people. The consumer culture is another one that I've already mentioned that I think is big and scales across there. But just like I said, this idea that every interaction is a financial interaction, that this authentic community that we believe we used to have is no longer available is huge. And then in the United States in particular, with regard to baby boomers, there is a prejudice against older people, which mm. I again- Ageism, yeah. Yeah, which I again will say, I'm embarrassed to admit that I probably held as a younger man and, and that as I get older myself, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I start to, to be a little more sensitive to it. Um, um, but I think that that consumer culture reinforces ageism and that a lot of things in the United States become focused on youth, health and beauty. Right. And so there becomes a point in any 60 year old's life, you know, not me yet, but where there's just not enough creams or ointments or whatever to make you look like you fit in. And then that way you start to feel a little ostracized from, from what's going on, especially if you are a boomer who spent a 30, 40 year career helping build what you thought was, was a great economic society to find out that you're, you're no longer wanted there. Ouch. Well, once again, you say a lot that makes me stop and think myself because I mean, I definitely have my own opinions when it comes to being an expat, but I think that sometimes it's difficult for me personally to remember the reasons why I moved overseas and try to understand why other people would move overseas. Because I left when I was like 16, 17 years old. But for the retirement age, you know, I guess I make assumptions on why people would move overseas. I think that the healthcare part is very interesting. And I guess I have a, a small side question before we move on. And that's how is the healthcare in a place like Mexico? Because I'm going to, I, once again, I have my own ideas, but um, you know, my assumption would be that a lot of people would think that the healthcare in Mexico is absolutely terrible and you know backwards and run down and stuff. Yeah, 
but I'm going to guess that's not the case. It is not the case. I would just have your, you know, listeners uh, Google medical tourism, right? And take a look at medical tourism, Mexico, and, and take a look at the procedures people are coming to Mexico for. I mean, and we're not, you know, gastric bypass surgery and plastic surgery and dental work and stuff like that, but also take into consideration that the screwed up bureaucracy and the, the corporate invasion of the uh, Food and Drug Administration here, which, which limits people's ability to take therapeutic or experimental drugs. I mean, there are people who go to Mexico because Mexico is willing to allow people who are, are terminal or close to terminal to get treatments that they just can't get in the United States for no other reason than, than stupid bureaucracy and money, right? And so, I mean, that is, that is one reason. But as far as the people that I interviewed said, what, what their major concern was with the healthcare system in Mexico is the time that they had to wait for simple routine checkups, right? So yes, they had to wait longer to get appointments than they were used to waiting in the United States, but there was never an issue of level of care. And if there was some kind of catastrophic or chronic uh, illness that needed immediate attention, obviously they, they got it. So um, the idea that Mexico is full of backwards, you know, because it's less expensive, it's full of backwards doctors who got their degrees in a trailer park or things of that nature just isn't true. In fact, a lot of the specialists in Mexico trained in the United States and returned to Mexico. But, you know, you can't you can't in the United States, you can't just go get an MRI on your own, right? And you certainly can't do it for anything less than, you know, $3,000, $4,000. I mean, it's just a big cumbersome pro, uh, uh, issue. And, and in Mexico, it's just not like that. You know, you have, there are people who I interviewed who said their co-pays in the United States were generally more expensive than their total out-of-pocket costs for medical services in Mexico. I mean, that's just nuts. And like I said, when the, the most a family of four could pay for health insurance is $500, that's the Cadillac policy. You can see why this makes so much sense. Um, not just for low income people, but just for people who would say, look, you know, I mean, I'm in the United States. I've got a family of four. You know, my wife's an attorney. I'm successful. We've got a Cadillac policy, if you will. And our, our health insurance costs is somewhere around $2,200 a month, Right. We, Jesus. Yeah. $2,200 a month. A month. A month. <laughs> a month. <laughs> you know? Wow. You know, I've had platinum coverage for decades now, and I've got a family, and I was never paying anything like that overseas. $2,200. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it is amazing. It's amazing. Now, granted, we know we're not having huge copays or anything like that. And there's, there's very little that we're going to suffer that that's not going to be covered. Um, but you know, for $500 a month, getting comparable coverage in Mexico, it, it does make you think because you're looking at $1,500 a month over the course of a year, over the course of five years and 10 years, you're talking about a big chunk, a big chunk. I mean, our mortgage, you know, is uh, 2,400 a month. So, <laughs> so you pay roughly the same amount yeah, yeah. in healthcare in private health care. And, and I'll add that, that, you know, the, our employers, right. They pay half of that healthcare cost, but so it's 11, about 1100 out of pocket, but you know, it's still pretty incredible. Yeah. But that, that is also part of the package with your employer. So, I mean, you have to keep that relevant. You know, I think a lot of people, they think that, oh, well, I get free healthcare. Well, you're not getting free healthcare. You're paying for it in some other way, whether it be that be in your wages or that be in your taxes or that be in some other um, aspect. You know, we all pay for everything. It's just how, you know, on the front end or on the back end. But okay, let's dig into the medical a little bit in Mexico, because I do think this is 
this is interesting. I guess one of the main fears that I would assume people would have if they were to have to live in Mexico and do any of these types of procedures is that they don't speak Spanish, therefore they're screwed, basically. But um, you touched on something really quick, and, and I can tell my own stories about this, uh, about the doctors and where they train and, and how they get educated, but I'll let you dive into it. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done a survey of doctors and where they train and how they get educated. I've just been told by people who see specialists that, oh, they often say, well, my doctor trained in Houston or my doctor trained in Dallas, or there's a lot of, um, of uh, doctors in, in Mexico who train in, um, in, in uh, the United States. And, you know, just like the United States, Mexico doesn't have a, a flat, you know, they're, 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 they're stratified, right? So there are really rich people in Mexico and there are really poor people in Mexico. And then just like in the United States, the really wealthy people tend to look for the best trained doctors. So doctors in Mexico have an incentive to go train in the best schools in the world, not just the United States, and to return to Mexico to serve those affluent populations. And so, you know, um, as I say in my book, the, the expats that I found in Mexico were not low income. They're actually upper income, very well educated. And so just, just like we would here, they're on the hunt for good doctors, right? So they're able to find them and, and, and expats in general seem satisfied with the medical care, like I said, outside of the, the, the longer waiting period for routine stuff. Um, you know, kind of one of the areas of concern in medical care in Mexico does relate to what I talked about before, which is that in Mexico, older people are taken care of by their families. If you're an expat to Mexico and your family is not there and you do reach 80 years old and above and you do start to require some part-time, if not full-time assisted living, there's not this corporate infrastructure of assisted living and nursing homes in Mexico like we have in the United States. In general, Mexicans don't plant their family members <laughs> in, in some kind of care facility. Um, and so when I asked, you know, what would make you go back to the United States, the, the number one answer was if I suffered some kind of catastrophic illness in which I required daily care. So, which is different than if I suffered an illness in which I needed good treatment. But what I've seen over the last couple of years is, is as I released this book, is that um, there are companies popping up. You know, people are getting privy to the idea that there's 1.5 million expats in Mexico. About a million of those are baby boomers. There's more moving there every day. The speed in which they're arriving is faster every day. And so they're starting to, to build these, I, I don't want to say American style, you know, they're not as, they're, they're not that per se, but they're facilities in which people could live together and get either part-time or permanent care, or this kind of, um, you know, care provider comes to your house and gives you some kind of medical care. So that need is being addressed. And I think there's probably some people who are going to make some good money addressing it. Well, and I think that's a big thing right there. You, when you live in a country that the cost of living is so much less. It's not unheard of. Actually, it's really the norm to have someone work in your home to help you. So I have someone who works in my home, who does the cleaning, who does um, helps with grocery shopping, helps with these types of things. Now, I think that that'll be exactly the same when you're living in Mexico and you maybe get a little bit older. You're not having to do these things. You're not, first of all, you're not going out and shoveling snow. There is no snow. <laughs> right. And you look at, you know, you look at the amount of accidents that happen with something like that. You're not going out and cutting the grass yourself. You're not raking the leaves yourself. Um, you know, you're not trying to, 
do so many physical things, maybe at an age, which could put you more at risk for injury. You have someone like we just call ours like a helper. It's, it's not a maid. It's not a it's not a uh, a nanny or anything like that. I don't have a nanny. I have a helper. I have someone who helps us around the house and tries to uh, make our lives a little bit better. And you know, I can say that living in Panama, every single one of my friends has someone that works for them. I have a lot of friends who have two people or three people. I have one person who just drives the kids around. Well you know, outside of coronavirus to go out to different types of activities and they just work as a driver and just as a gopher. And then they have someone who cooks and then someone who takes care of the house. And I mean, these are not decamillionaires by any means, you know, they're, they're well-to-do, but they're professionals. But I mean, that's an affordable thing. In Canada, if I had to have a full-time live-in person, you know, like I better get a second and a third job and <laughs> make a lot more money for something like that. Yeah. I mean, and the, the people that I interviewed who were retired in Mexico spoke to that too. I mean, they, they kind of, they're, I'm not saying that Mexico does not have low income, uh, us Americans who live there. They definitely do. They're just not the majority, but of the low income ones that I found who are living really minimally, minimally off social security or pensions and things like that, who do have chronic health conditions, you know, they're, they're living for 16 to $1,800 a month. And yeah, they're living in rental homes that have pools. They have a gardener, they have a housekeeper, they, you know, they have the help they need. And I think that they're just astonished and blown away by one, the level of support that's available to and there and two, the low cost uh, uh, to support it. Right. Um, and it just increases your lifestyle, lowers your stress. And yeah, I mean, it makes you less privy to injury that would come from having to take care of some of those things. And so the add on for these companies that I'm kind of talking about is not providing medical care per se and not treatments, right. But per not treatments, yeah. providing monitoring, you know, so we're going to do these things. We're going to help you get your groceries, keep your house clean, make sure your bathroom's safe. And we're going to take your blood pressure, do a blood test if we need to monitor you to see how you're doing. And then if you do suffer or seem to have symptoms of something catastrophic, then we're going to be able to get you to the doctor or the hospital to take care of it. Um, and that's, you know, really all people need. You know, one of the conclusions in the book was that the, the, the baby boomers who were there and who were retired, who did have some health issues or needed some assistance, what they wanted most were relationships of reciprocity. They didn't want to go somewhere and be cared for. They wanted to make it on their own as long and as well as possible while being in a community of other people had the same idea so that there were other people to help them too. But they didn't like the fact that like, you kind of like have like, you live on your own or you go to a care facility, right? They, they wanted like some kind of bridge there because they were capable of doing more and wanted to do more. And they just like, there is something to be said about the fact that when someone starts to do everything for you, you either forget how to do it yourself or you refuse, right? And then at that point, you lose whatever ability that was. And so, you know, sometimes that involves cognitive challenges too, you know, like there's a cognitive challenge of getting out of my house, trying to negotiate a little bit of Spanish to do my grocery shopping. And if you just go to a facility where that's all taken care of for you, then, you know, that need... Uh, uh, to explore and, 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 and discern language or anything like that, or have social activity um, does, doesn't do very well for, for your cognitive ability in the long run, you know? So people want to be challenged. They don't want someone to do stuff for them all the time, which is probably your experience with your helper. Well, absolutely. And 
I would add to that, it's not really just retirees, but I think everybody in the world, when you are challenged and when you put yourself into difficult situations, that is really what helps you grow as a human being. And I think that a lot of self-confidence can be built from that. I know that I'm a very confident person because I put myself through hell. You know, like I've not been on vacation for 20 years uh, traveling around the world. These are not all inclusive. You know, I started out, backpacking and hitchhiking. And yes, now I do well for myself and I stay in nice five-star hotels. But I mean, that struggle and that patience that I've built up over those years has really developed me as a human being. And I don't think it matters that, you know, if you're 17, like I was when I started this, or you're 65 when you start this, I think that the more challenges that you put yourself through, you're going to grow. And I would believe that that will help with longevity throughout your life. Yeah. And I think that it also breaks down fears and stigmas too. You know, it's like, you know, the first place people want to go is Canada, right? Well, I'll go visit Canada because I speak English and everything's in English and et cetera, et cetera. And then maybe I'll go to to France where I know most people speak English, even if they don't speak it to me, you know, but like, like, you know, I think you've probably gotten there and I've probably gotten there where I'm kind of like, excited to be plopped down in somewhere challenging, you know, I mean, if yeah. not for the, the, <laughs> the violence and the, and the fruit market bombings, you know, I'd love to be plopped in Iraq someday. I mean, I think that that would be like a really cool challenge knowing now that like you will figure it out and you will also find that the people in those countries, when they realize that you're, you're genuine about connecting are going to help you through that struggle and make sure that you're comfortable and getting the things that you need. I think, I think people often feel like they're targets uh, for crime and, and violence. And I think that more often the interactions that you have are you're a, you're a target to be helped. Right. And there are way more people who always want to come to your, to your, to your, to your side to assist you than there are that, that want to hurt you. And the more experiences that you have like that, the bigger the world feels. You know, suddenly you feel like, hey, drop me in the center of some Arabic speaking country. Or for me, it was China, right? I was like, I can't even comprehend those characters. <laughs> <laughs> but China, you have to be fair. China's not another country. China's another planet. Yeah. China is about as different as you can possibly get on planet Earth. Trust me, I know I married a woman from China. <laughs> yeah, so you know. Yeah, but I like how the challenges, they, they make you feel brave, you know, and I think that's important. No, I agree with that 100%. So let's dig into, well, we've, we've talked a little bit about why moving overseas, but let's talk a little bit more about a great life for themselves in Mexico. What is this authentic community? What are those things that people are, that Mexico has that are really on offer? I think, you know, one is kind of the focus on family over commerce, right? And the idea that you you take care of your own. That doesn't mean that there's not families there that don't have strife and want to beat the hell out of each other or anything like that. But I think that that attitude kind of permeates the, the culture in general. And I think one of the downsides to that for most Americans is we are so like clock focused, right? Everything is, is time, time, time. We have times, we keep appointments, so we don't let a second go to waste. And in Mexico, it's not like that. There's a saying there that mañana never means mañana, which means that if you have an appointment tomorrow for someone to come fix your refrigerator, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to show up tomorrow. Yeah. It Why could, is that? It could be Tuesday, but it could be next Tuesday. It's the same here in Panama. It's the That's same right. Here in Panama. That's right. So why is that? Why would somebody who's going to fix your refrigerator, what could get in the way of that? And sometimes it is family or other commitments or, you know, try and 
you know, I mean, just trying to, 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 to prioritize your life in a way that doesn't revolve around someone else's refrigerator. So on one hand, that's really good for people who leave the United States and feel that breath of fresh air. On the other side, it's kind of hard to, to cut from that, um, that time commitment, but, but that's definitely one of them. You know, another thing that people spoke about and that I spoke about myself too, is that, you know, I don't mean to keep harping on consumer society, you know, as, B.B. King said, I've been rich and I've been poor and I like rich better. You know, I'm, I'm the same as well. But at, but, but at a time, you know, it, it does feel like a bombardment and it does feel like there's really nothing else going on. You can't escape an advertisement. You can't escape some kind of economic exchange. And so when people go to Mexico, especially if they're not fluent with the language and the culture, I think what they do feel, again, is this breath of fresh air in the sense that it may be there. You know, I, I know there's no shortage of cell phone ads and all of this stuff in Mexico, but that you don't feel it as much because you don't understand it as much. And so you're, you're kind of, your brain is focused on the new things you're seeing, maybe trying to learn the language, getting to know some locals and stuff. And so this overarching pressure to buy, 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 consume, consume, consume is, is lifted to some degree. And I think that gives people a, a sense of fresh air. You know, you also can't get involved in the politics of Mexico unless you're a citizen. And so as frustrating as not having stop signs or the, the laws about dogs roaming the streets may be to you, there's not a damn thing you can do about it. And I think for some people, that's also a little bit refreshing is that, you know, you're not going to sit in these social media battles or family battles about politics and things of that nature because you just, you can't participate in them. And you know what, you have to be careful about it too. You can't, you're not allowed to criticize, if you're not a citizen, you're not allowed to, you know, get involved in politics and make big blanket criticisms of it. So there's a step away from that too, which I think in, in this time and age is, is definitely um, refreshing. And, you know, and that goes to this pace, pace of life that, you know, that's, that's it. I mean, people just say, I'm just not as stressed here as I am. I'm not worrying about money. I'm not worrying about healthcare. I don't have this consumer culture pounding me to buy something all of the time. Um, people are prioritizing family and friends a little bit more over commerce. And, and I'm cognitively challenged to learn a new language, new cultures and customs. And in that combination of things, I think people feel refreshed and that they have a new life. And you mentioned something really interesting there because Talking about the financial aspects, and we talked about it before, um, you said earlier about renting. You know, I think that that's a really important one because a lot of North Americans, the majority of their wealth, their net worth is all held in their primary residence. So when people move to Mexico or anywhere south of the border, you know, and you liquidate that, you get rid of your primary residence and you have two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in the bank, you know, that can go a very, very long time, you know, even with just very minimal um, investment returns. Like I think in a lot of those cases, you can really stay in cash and last for, for decades probably off of that type of money. Because in a lot of these cases, you don't need to own the, the house that you live in. And I think that um, people get overly attached to... Uh, pride of ownership with their homes. And I don't think that's really that necessary. And I think if you already make the the leap to moving overseas and having a life of adventure, you know, that's a sacrifice that a lot of people are willing to take. Um, have you seen this with the financial side that people, um, they have that mental shift in their head? I think a lot of 
people experience the mental shift because of the way the Mexican economy is. So it is largely a cash economy. And with regard to, you know, investment properties and stuff, this is really like an U.S. American idea that has been imported down there. When the 2008-2009 financial housing crisis hit the United States, it hit Mexico and some of these booming towns equally hard. And what had happened was there were both U.S. and Mexican lenders that were making these crazy uh, loans for new homes or second homes uh, in Mexico, just like they were in the United States. And people, U.S. citizens who had those homes in Mexico, they just up and bolted and left them there. So Mexico had a, a very similar crisis. At that point, it kind of put limits on on banks' avail, uh, ability to make those kind of crazy long-term adjustable loans. And so it, Mexico has kind of returned to a cash economy with regard to homes, which means that sometimes there's some level of seller financing. Getting a mortgage in Mexico is very hard. It's not impossible, but people who can afford a home generally buy it in cash. And in that sense, you know, I guess as far as an investment goes, you could look at it that way, but I don't think people in Mexico do at the rate that we do. And, and, and people who come to, to Mexico and buy homes from the United States as investments generally sell them to other American, you know, U.S. American suckers to buy, right? It's not like they're coming down there buying or building these homes and then selling them to Mexicans. It's just not the case because the people aren't used to looking at a home that way. Um, I think of you, I think that people have made money in, in homes in Mexico, fixing and flipping, but again, it's selling to other U S Americans. So if that, if that dries up, then your investments at stake, just like it would be at anywhere else, but a majority of the people rent, you know, and, in and in the, the really desirable places, uh, San Miguel de Allende and Guanajuato and stuff like that, where there's a lot of expats, um, those desirable places really are down in the city centers and they double as businesses and residents. You know, we don't have in Mexico the strict boundary of this is a commercial zone and it's only for business and this is a housing zone and it's only for housing. And it's one of my good Yeah, well, zoning is just not the same in Latin America. Yeah. Yeah. And as my, one of my good friends down in San Miguel said, he said, you know, if you're going to buy a home in Mexico, you can't just do an internet search. Like you got to come down and look because there is a chance that some welder or some horseshoer or some mechanic shop could be right next door to your home. So if peace and quiet is what you're looking for, you need to, you need to, um, you know, come down and check it out. So in that respect, home buying in general is different. And like I said, in the desirable places, there's a lot of combo of like, hey, there's a restaurant in the basement or a convenience store in the basement and the house is in the back or the house is upstairs or something like that. There's just a lot more interconnectedness, which which I enjoy. And a lot of people in my book enjoyed because it felt like, you know, like Manhattan, you know, in where you could walk out your front door and within a matter of blocks, you could do your grocery shopping, get your flowers, get a book, get a newspaper and stuff like that. And so the, the things that you were consuming are, are right there in your neighborhood and you're buying them from people you see every day, as opposed to what we have in the United States where you get in your car and you drive, you know, 10 minutes or 10 miles to a business center and you go in a giant store where you never see anybody who made any of the things or grew any of the things that you're eating. Well, it's the same thing here in Panama city. Like, 
in my neighborhood, I'm looking out my window right now in my penthouse. I've got the ocean right in front of me. There's a park right here. Then next door is a florist. It was my friend's birthday this week, so we sent flowers. It was two seconds to go downstairs. We have a green grocer, an Asian grocery store. Talking about hospitals before, we have a John Hopkins that is close by, um, where all the doctors were trained in the United States. Everybody speaks fluent English. Um, I speak Spanish, but... Uh, Still, it is nice, you know, especially from the, the medical side where maybe I don't know a lot of the, the medical terms and things like that, that they do speak English. I mean, there's a hardware store, like there's everything in this area that I can walk to. You know, we've been here over a year now. We never bought a car, you know, like we just didn't need one. So I don't need to pay, pay for the car. I don't need to pay for the insurance. I don't need to pay for repairs. I don't need to pay for gas, you know, and we just walk everywhere. Um, I love this part of it. I actually just adore it. I think it's the greatest thing ever. I hate having a car. No, I agree. I agree. Definitely. You know, and, and one of the criticisms of, you know, what has happened in Mexico with the accelerated um, arrival of more and more expats is, is that some American companies and corporations have started to move down there to serve them, which in some respects has started to change or mold the neighborhoods, which in some respects has started to create animosity among the locals. But, you know, it's always this double-edged sword of the thing that attracts you the most to a place is the thing that ends up getting taken away because of other people's needs. And in Mexico, a great example of that is just like the architecture. You know, when you go, going back to the to buying a home thing, when you go to Mexico, right, it's not that there aren't building codes or anything like that. It's not like it's totally the Wild West, but there's a lot more leniency. And also what you have is buildings, like they don't just tear stuff down like they do here. You don't just go level a neighborhood and then build a new building. You generally build on or build around. And so you have a lot of new construction combined with stuff from the 1700s and the 1800s. And it's really beautiful. And so people are attracted to like the windows or wherever you want them to be. And they're not always the same size. And the doors can be big double double wooden doors and yada, yada, yada. The problem for a U.S. American coming down is like they want to update and renovate their house and they realize that like nothing is to scale or proportionate. And I don't think that we appreciate that, you know, in the United States, all of our counters are the same size, right? But we don't yep. appreciate that. We don't, we don't realize that that's actually a thing. All of our doors are the same size, but we don't realize that that's actually a thing. All of our windows, right? Because we we make everything in bulk and we buy everything in bulk. And what happens over time is we start to get this uniformity, right? And so that's kind of one of the issues in Mexico and these big expat communities is then you start to get this uniformity. And in that, it starts to take away the quaintness and the, the beauty and the uniqueness of a place. And I think that's what starts to make people resentful of the arrival of Americans, U.S. Americans, who may not realize what they're doing when they think to themselves, I'm improving a neighborhood or I'm improving a home for the next person, really what they're doing is they're Ameri U.S. Americanizing a home and that's not always welcome. Amazing. Well, and I want to talk about the, where is it that people are going? Where are these expat communities in Mexico? Not just like, what is the best one? It's, it's not about that. I'm, I'm curious what the data shows. Where are the most amount of people going? Well, I think everyone's always surprised to find out it's Tijuana. Right. I mean, wow. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> See, because that's like, talk about reputations. That's not the first place that would come to my mind. I would have thought like Cancun or Merida or something like that on the other side. No, no, it is, it is, uh, it's definitely um, Tijuana. And, and the reason for that, 
and especially the acceleration of that as of late is its proximity to the U.S. And there are so many tech entrepreneurs and tech employees now who are just living in Tijuana and working in the United States and making drive because the, the cost is so inexpensive. Um, you know, Tijuana has a reputation as a party town, you know, as a drug town, you know, as kind of dangerous red light district kind of nightlife. And, and while it certainly has elements of that, you know, all places do, for the most part, it's a pretty metropolitan place with great infrastructure, plenty of coastline, you know, pet plenty of, of beach living. And so a lot of people are, are who can get past that fear in the media are taking advantage of it. Um, as far as kind of what we might think is more village kind of expat enclaves, you know, people who are going for a little bit more authentic kind of Mexico, um, there's certainly with the retired community, you know, the number, the number one retirement community in Mexico is a place called Lake Chapala, which is just 30 minutes or 30 miles south of Guadalajara and actually the first place that I visited there. And, it, you know, it has about 20,000 permanent full-time Canadian and U.S. residents. And so this was my very first trip to Mexico, my very first trip outside of the United States. And we rented a car in Guadalajara and drove down there. And I was getting a little panicked that I wasn't going to be able to find my way around because I realized pretty quick that my Google Maps that I had printed out were not lining up with everything that I saw. <laughs> so I pulled over to a, a little convenience store and I got out and I looked around and it was Americans and Canadians everywhere, you know, so this idea that I was going to end up somewhere not speak Spanish and be totally lost was dispelled within a few minutes. So Lake Chapala is a great place. It's a real kind of artist community, writers community. Um, and, uh, it has the big lake there, which I think is a draw. Um, and, and, but it is one of the more expensive, you know, expat communities. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, it's right there with Puerto Vallarta, which is a popular tourist and expat destination, and, and just a little ways behind Mexico City, which is the most expensive expat destination. Um, then there's San Miguel de Allende, which is just a little northwest of Mexico City. Um, and that is a beautiful city that I, you know, that's my favorite city in Mexico. It's not a beach resort. Um, it's an international destination. It's Spanish colonial cobblestone roads, you know, great churches as far as our architecture is concerned. Um, lots of uh, English-speaking Mexicans as well as lots of international travelers. Um, I think it ends up routinely in the top five, you know, best cities in the world. It's a, it's a heritage site, you know, it's one of the top 10 heritage sites in the, in the entire world and it's wonderful. Um, as far as, you know, people who are looking for a good cost of living on the coast, you're right, Merida is like, you know, pretty low cost of living, pretty good um, distance to the beach, though it's not on the water. I think people are a little confused about that. You still got to drive to the beach, but it's not terrible. But the thing to consider in any of these places is weather, you know, like it's hot and humid there. So the winters are wonderful, but if you're not somebody used to the heat and humidity, most places in Mexico are going to, on the coast, are going to give you that. The Yucatan Peninsula, is is probably the the fastest growing area now from from what i've seen you know for a while there it was baja california and the baja peninsula so if you're not familiar with mexico cabo sits at the very south end of the baja peninsula and that's a really popular expat destination and tourist destination if you continue up puerto vallarta is on 
is is on the inland side, but um, you know it's it's on the Pacific coast as well, and it's a more expensive uh, place. It's really well developed, lots of infrastructure, lots of apartments. But the Yucatan Peninsula is, I think, where people are going for, and that's the Gulf side. That's where they're going for kind of the deals and the beach beauty and stuff. And so working your way down from Cancun, which has plenty of expats in it, it's just a little commercial for people. You know, you've got Playa del Carmen, which is really a a fast growing um, area. You've got Tulum, which is a faster growing area. And these are places where you can still get great deals on housing if buying a house is your is your priority. It's not would never be mine, but <laughs> but um, and and you know where you have you still have an authentic Mexican community there, right? So if your goal is to assimilate to learn Spanish and to really kind of be a part of Mexico and not aside from it, then then moving down the Yucatan Peninsula is it is a great way to do that. Well, and then they have so much of the heritage there. I remember when I started backpacking and hitchhiking through there like 20 years ago, like going to Tulum and Chichen Itza and those type of Mayan ruins is just incredible. Like you just, I mean, they're just so amazing. Like it's jaw dropping to look at some of these places. Yeah. I mean, these are some of the oldest historical sites for humanity in the world, you know, and I think what's neat about it is unlike here where everything is roped off and you don't get to touch it. And some professor doya, do, doda, doisa, whatever they call the museum people, you know, get, have to tell you about the history and what it's made out of and what it feels like, you know, in Mexico, you've got plenty of opportunities just to climb up there. Yeah. <laughs> we did. And we got yeah, in trouble for part it, of that. History. It's not roped off. You're right. No, yeah. no, no. I mean, and you know, I guess some people would say that's destructive. I think it's pretty cool, you know, cause you're going to get a view from, I mean, who gets to climb a pyramid in Egypt even, right? Like you get you get to go to Mexico and see what thousands of years of, of humans have seen from this spot that was very spiritual to them and remains very spiritual for a lot of people. I think it's wonderful. Well, and then the one outside of Mexico City, and I'm sure I'm going to absolutely butcher the name, but Tiahuatacan is like some of the largest pyramids in the world. And I swear, most North Americans have never even heard of it before. And they're the, the third largest pyramids in the world and the first two are pyramids of giza and like these are giants like they're just absolutely massive but you have that type of culture and and history in your backyard in a place like mexico which is crazy yeah you know our folks think you have to go over to the middle east for some kind of wonderful and crazy encounter like that we don't you know i i often joke like i grew up in washington state just south of british columbia and i you know i remember going by farmhouses and there was like a sign it was like this house built in 1891 you know be careful and we just don't have like to think that like this 100 or 200 years might be the the pinnacle of our ruins and of our history and to know that there's been you know tens of thousands of years of human culture and existence just you know a few hundred miles away and that we we never explored or appreciated it just it boggles the mind it boggles the mind absolutely well I want to talk as we wrap up about foreign governments and kind of the financial possibilities, because we chatted quickly about this before we started uh, our interview today. And and I think it's a good way to wrap up the interview. Um, Can you talk to me about what you discuss in your book and what maybe you see in the future, how this is going to progress? Yeah, I think one of people, I think, okay, so we're having a bit of a brain drain. This is kind of one of the main points of the book is it's not low income uneducated people who are leaving the United States for other countries, not just Mexico. It turns out that it's some of the most educated and upper income 
uh, people in the United States who are leaving, you know, and so the consequences for the United States could be dire, a drop in, in volunteerism, a drop in mentorship, and a drop in cash, right? So one of the points I made at the end of the book is I, I've been to Panama, you know, and they're, I mean, they're they're doing what I've suggested. They're very purposeful about trying to attract that money and those expats to, to, to grow their economy. But if, if countries look at this and consider this, an average couple from the United States who leaves the United States to go live in another country, no matter what the cost of living is, they still generally tend to spend about $26,500 a year right? They'll take their money and they'll travel, they'll, they'll buy into the economy, they may buy property or whatever else, whatever else there is, but let's call it $26,500 a year. In San Miguel, you have an influx of 5,000, you know, a year uh, expats who may, who may be spending that money. And over the course of the year, that translates to about $132 million cash injection into a local economy. Yeah, that, and that's, that's municipal. That's not countrywide. That's not state. You're talking about municipal. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. So if you, if you said, well, I'd like to imagine this environment in which I try and invite, you know, 25,000 expats a year, you know, give them incentives, breaks, make the, the ease of movement easy. You're talking about damn near a billion dollars, right? I mean, that's big money. And I think, like I said, Panama is privy to that, you know, Costa Rica has started to explore that. So there's a balance and as I kind of warned in the book, there's a balance with how do we invite expats, provide them incentives to to come into our communities, but how do we at the same time preserve our own culture and community and not sell it out in, you know, in the interest of money? And I think the good news for foreign governments is as long as we continue in the United States to be naive, to listen to the media, to believe all of the evils and dangers of foreign countries, then be rest assured the people who are going to arrive there are going to be educated, right, understanding people who don't want to be in your country to dismantle it and turn it into the United States. In fact, quite the opposite. They want to come spend $132 million a year to be where you are because you have something better that they want. I love it. Perfect. That was a really interesting conversation. Travis, thank you so much. If my listeners want to pick up your book, if they want to find out more about what you do, where can we send them? I would say with regard to the book, I would go to amazon.com and I would search uh, The Fun Side of the Wall by Travis Luther and you should be able to find it there. We've also broken out a lot more of the data and some of the information that didn't end up in the final book. And we've got that published over at mightybuffalo.com. And then if you have any interest in, in any of the other things I'm doing, um, feel free to check me out at travisluther.com. Perfect. And I will definitely recommend the book. I have the book in my hand right now. It's a beautiful book. And there's just a ton of other information that we just couldn't cover today. There's too many things. But I hope that this is a good starting point for everyone and you go and pick it up. Thanks so much, Travis, for your time. And we'll talk soon, okay? Thank you, Mikhail. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. I want to get some feedback from you, the listener. We're looking at ways that we can take the podcast in new directions, new guests that we want to have on the show, new ideas we want to share with you. So we have a lot of threads going for this at Expat Money Forum, our private Facebook group. If you go to expatmoneyforum.com, you can join the conversation. I want to hear feedback from you guys. 
What topics have we not covered that you want to hear more of? Do you want to hear more stories from successful expats who have moved offshore? Do you want to hear more business-related stuff, more finance-related stuff? Are you more interested in immigration and visas and passports? Is it the investments or real estate? I want to know what you are interested in. This show is not about me. It is about you guys. It is about all of my amazing listeners and trying to help inspire you and get you the best up-to-date knowledge every single Wednesday when I publish this show. So join the conversation at Expat Money Forum. Let me know what you think, what you want to hear more about, how I can best serve you. It's really important to me to make this show the absolute best in our space. And I think we're off to a really good start. Podcast has been going for over four years now, which is just hard to believe. I, it seems like just yesterday I started it, and the feedback has been amazing. But there's always room to improve. There's always things we can do better. So share your knowledge, share your expertise, share what you want to hear, share your wants, your desires, your needs, your goals, everything with us at Expat Money Forum. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.